Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Manya, every week at the end of People of the Pod, we ask listeners to subscribe to People of the Pod. Can you explain to our listeners what exactly subscribing entails? Is there a cost? Sefi, subscribing to our podcast doesn't cost a thing. It simply shows you're a fan. The added benefit of subscribing is that episodes of your favorite show are sent directly to your phone each week. You don't have to go looking for it. So we encourage people to subscribe to build a community of loyal listeners. It doesn't cost a thing. So subscribing is just a way to make it much easier to listen to people of the pod. Awesome. So I hope all of our listeners will go and hit the subscribe button, subscribe to people of the pod on your favorite podcast app. And while they're there, they might as well hit the review button and talk about how insightful we are. (laughs) Speaking of awesome and insightful, who did you talk to this week for the podcast? Sefi, I spoke to the awesome and insightful Rabbi Angela Bookdahl, the rabbi of Central Synagogue in Manhattan, about this moment in our history and the Jewish obligation to engage in these difficult conversations. What else is in store? Well, Manya, one of my absolute favorite sessions from the AJC Virtual Global Forum was when former Deputy National Security Advisor Tony Blinken from the Obama administration, who's now a key advisor to Vice President Joe Biden, had a debate with KT McFarlane, the former Deputy National Security Advisor in the Trump administration, about the foreign policies of those two candidates. And we are running that now for people to listen to on People of the Pod. In 2001, Rabbi Angela Bookdahl became the first Asian American to be ordained as a rabbi. And in 2014, she became the first woman to lead Central Synagogue in Manhattan. She has become an influential leader on social justice issues in the reform movement. Rabbi Bookdahl is here with us now to discuss what it means to be a Jew of color in 2020, during a global pandemic, and during a watershed moment in race relations. Rabbi Bookdahl, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I presume, just like the rest of us, you too have been working from home as well as worshiping from home during this pandemic. Uh, Am I right? Yes, that's right. (laughs) So now... A lot has happened since we all headed home, and you know we've seen a, a worldwide reaction to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Breonna Taylor in Louisville, uh, Ahmaud Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia. There has been so much, and I'm curious if you have seen this as a turning point in, in the quest for racial justice in this country, and how have you addressed that, if at all, with your congregants? I do think that we are going to look back at this moment as a turning point, God willing. And I'm seeing things that make it feel different than other times that there have been unjust deaths of unarmed Black men and women. And that includes legislation that passed in the last few weeks. That includes a kind of reckoning that corporations are doing, everything from new observances of Juneteenth to a reassessment of their diversity practices. And at Central, Fortunately, this is not something that we're just waking up to. We've been working on issues of systemic racism through the criminal justice system. We've been working on everything from ending cash bail to we perform services at Rikers and we do a lot of work around criminal justice reform. But we've also been thinking about our benefits and the diversity of our staff and how we handle that. And I think that in this moment, it's not enough to say 
we're not racist, we support Black people, that is actually, in some ways, honestly, a form of neutrality and indifference, that actually, if we are not actively uh, working to dismantle some of the systems that are in place and working to actively lift up people of color and businesses and employees, all of that, that we are um, not doing enough. Do you hear that kind of pushback from your congregants, that kind of neutrality argument, if you will, that we're doing what we can, we've made lots of progress. Uh, Do you hear that kind of argument? And if so, how do you address it? Yes, I mean, I do. And and listen, nobody wants to think of themselves as racist. And I don't think that my community as a whole harbors any sort of active racism in the sense, generally speaking of, uh, you know, treating people poorly. That being said, I think that we harbor sentiments and judgments and assumptions that we don't always realize are racist. Just within our own community, I have to take stock of the fact that we have Black Jews in our community who shared with me, especially in recent weeks, their experience of walking into the sanctuary and feeling that the security guard trailed them in and and watched them differently, or comments they get from well-meaning congregants who ask, are you Jewish? Uh, Believe me, as a Jew of color, I have received that for most of my life. To hearing, are you from this neighborhood? You should go to synagogue in your neighborhood. To, are you circumcised? I mean, there are some unbelievable things that people don't even acknowledge or think of as racist, but they're just uh, insensitive and and racist and other people. um, And they, they make people feel othered, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So there is that kind of reckoning. In addition to the fact of just thinking about whether or not we've been proactive about um, everything from our hiring practices to how we um, might spend our resources. You know, we, we a question we recently asked ourselves was uh, we're thinking about hiring, you know, a certain kind of cleaning service that will do a good job with the pandemic and really deep cleaning. Uh, and we decided to ask the question if they hire people who are formerly incarcerated, since this has been part of our issue of making sure people have second chances and at Central, we will hire people who've been formerly incarcerated, and that's important to us. And mm-hmm. we asked that question, and they said that they don't. So now we have an opportunity to push them on that or to make a decision that we don't give them our business. So we need to actually take steps that are changing some of these systems that are in place, not just saying the right things. Mm-hmm. So so you actually answered a question I was going to ask you, because there has been this conversation ongoing for several months about Jews of color, that phrase, Jews of color, and whether or not Jews of color are adequately measured um, or adequately recognized, um, equally recognized in their congregations. And I was going to ask, do you consider yourself a Jew of color? I always find it so funny when people ask me if I think I'm a Jew of color. I feel like it's so obvious that I am. Um, You know, I was born in South Korea. Korean was my first language. I think that I appear Asian. And it's interesting that some people are surprised when I say that I consider myself a Jew of color. I will say absolutely that my experience as an Asian woman, Jew of color, is very different than being a Black man who is a Jew of color because racism operates differently in America. I'm not going to get trailed by a security guard coming into a sanctuary like he did. But I recognized a lot of the other comments he mentioned of the way that people would make assumptions that I didn't belong. Mm -hmm. And still, actually, even when I would read Hebrew and preach and sing and do all the things and wear a talit, that people had such a disconnect that they would still say, but are you Jewish? And, um, 
you know, it contributes to the fact that when I was named the rabbi of Central Synagogue, that a Jewish publication made it their headline, it's official, non-Jews can become rabbis. So it is stunningly racist. I think the way that I have, you know, still encountered what people would call maybe uh, a kind of tribalism that, that exists in the Jewish community. Um, and so, you know, I don't think that it's the same for all Jews of color. It's not even the same for all Black Jews of color. That being said, I think that there are some experiences we share, and I think that ignoring it is not helpful. And I remember that at one point when I was leading services in my college campus, one of my friends said to me, Angela, you just look Jewish to me now. I think she tried to mean that as a compliment. But for me, I was I was a little dumbfounded by what it means to look Jewish, especially if you look around at what Jews look like. And second of all, I understood that comment to mean that she no longer saw me as Asian in a way. And there was a sense that that was erasing a piece of who I am at the same time. So I um, would invite us not to think of not seeing color, to, to see it, to acknowledge it, to, to uh, glory in it. Is that the Jewish obligation to people of color in our congregations is to, I love your verb, glory in it. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think, you know, listen, the tricky thing is not wanting to have Jews of color feel sort of tokenized or somehow completely set apart at the same time, acknowledging. And, you know, it's interesting. Here I am. I'm the senior rabbi of a community and I'm a Jew of color. And I make assumptions about how much my community knows we're welcoming and open in this way. And yet we had a black Jew speak from our quote from our Bima um, two weeks ago. And it was amazing how black Jews in our community came forward and wrote me in a way that created an invitation and an acknowledgement that I kind of wrongly made the assumption because I'm a Jew of color was sort of always there. And so that was interesting. And, you know, in a similar vein, we have a lot of LGBTQ families in our community. And the first time we marked Pride Shabbat actively was last year because we're, oh, you know, we're so welcoming. We have two of our clergy are gay and openly open lesbians that are in marriages. And so I kind of figured, of course, you know that we're open and welcoming. It was amazing what it did for our LGBTQ community to just have it marked at a Friday night service with, with Pride Shabbat. And so we should not ignore those differences. We should celebrate them and, um, and see them as like part of the the mixed multitude that we have been since we left Egypt. We were called an Arab Rav when we left Egypt, and we have never been anything but that. We've never been some kind of uh, purebred, Ashkenormative Jewish community, ever. That's like never been who we are when you look at the entirety of us through all of Jewish history. So it's really just a very kind of um, narrow American Jewish of the last 200 years or even 100 years assumption that there's a way one way to look Jewish, eat Jewish, talk Jewish. And that's, and that's very Eurocentric. Mm -hmm. So does that give the Jewish community um, an added strength? Does it empower us to really take a central role in these fights for racial justice? And, and do you think that we fully kind of embrace that strength? Well, I think it absolutely should. First of all, how wonderful that we can have people within our community that can speak in multiple communities and feel comfortable and be bridges between communities and help us understand ourselves and other communities better. Also, how wonderful that we're not monolithic and we have different ways of thinking that can come into this and help us. I do think, though, that not all Jews feel that way and can feel very threatened by 
looking at a community of people with lots of people of different colors and family family makeup and feel that somehow this is threatening their own sense of Jewish memory or even more so their sense of Jewish identity. If their Jewish identity is primarily cultural, which I would also maybe put cultural slash ethnic, especially when there's not as much substance to what it is beyond kind of a, you know, the foods I eat, the kind of vibe I have, then when you see Jews who look black or Asian or who have a completely different cultural or ethnic vibe that's different, then suddenly it's like, if, well, if that's Jewish, but this is the foundation of my Judaism, then you're you're threatening my own sense of, of my, my belonging. And so it's not always been welcomed by some Jews. And I would say that oftentimes, you know, the less secure people are in their Jewish identity, the more threatened they feel. Um, I think those who are deeply comfortable and observant and their Judaism rests on a lot more than just sort of some kind of thin cultural veneer um, are less threatened by it, honestly. But I, I think it's an amazing opportunity for us right now. So at last year's AJC Global Forum, you were on a panel about intersectionality and you told the story about how the movement for black lives, when they adopted a position on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you use that as an example of what happens when the Jewish community kind of bows out, right, or, or decides not to take a seat at the table. I'm curious, amid this tumultuous time, do you see a greater willingness on the part of Jews to engage in those difficult conversations where they're bound to encounter uncomfortable, disagreeable, perhaps even downright hateful points of view? I think the Jewish community is waking up in the last year or two to the presence of Jews of color within our own community and the role and importance of them. But I also think that there is a reckoning that the Jewish community is having with the fact that whatever the number of Jews of color are in America, and we can argue about what that number actually is, and nobody really knows, it's probably higher than most people think, but whatever that number is, they are most certainly not showing up in most of our Jewish, organized Jewish spaces of synagogue life, of federations, of, you know, Jewish camps. And I think we need to really take a hard look at why that is. And thinking about that, I think that there's a, a second reckoning. We Jews like to think of ourselves as having been deeply involved in the civil rights movement and issues of social justice, and that's right. But when you look at kind of the many of the progressive causes today, including Black Lives Matter, there haven't been as many organized Jewish communities at the table. That doesn't mean there aren't individual Jews who are involved. And with the exception of a few Jewish justice organizations like Ben the Ark or J. Fredge, uh, who definitely have been at the table. You know, if you look at most synagogues, most federations, most Jewish organizations, they have not necessarily been sitting at the table of some of these issues around race and systemic issues of poverty and class. And I think that that's been to our detriment. And I recognize that for some Jews, it's not been a completely comfortable place to be. And I will just name that the way that many people in progressive circles feel about Israel the um, overt anti-Israel sentiment and sometimes even anti-Semitic sentiment that is expressed in some of those arenas have made Jews feel less comfortable. I'll name that at the Black Lives Matter platform, I believe this has been taken out since, but in the original platform, you know, described Israel as an apartheid state that took part in genocidal activity. And so, you know, that was a reason that many Jews decided they had to bow out of that movement. 
But if we're not at the table at all, if we're not in relationship, we are missing some of the most important work that needs to happen in our nation today. And the Jewish community cannot afford to sit it out. Well, Rabbi Bookdahl, I believe our time is up and I, I appreciate you coming and, and talking to us about these very important issues. Anything else you want to add? Well, you know, I think we're a little bit in the wilderness right now. We're Bamidbar, literally in the Torah reading cycle, and it feels that way, actually, with the global pandemic and where we are with everything in the world. But I've seen little glimpses of that promised land, as I think that we all have, of what is possible. And I actually feel very hopeful that this intersection of where we are, both with this pandemic and with the pandemic of racism, uh, the confluence of them at the same time, has created this interesting alchemy that things can move in a way that I hadn't expected they could shift so quickly. So I guess I leave with a hopeful feeling that um, things are going to change. And I really think that Jews will be part of that solution. I pray that we will be. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The first presidential debate won't take place for another few months, but at last month's virtual global forum, AJC hosted our own, featuring former Deputy National Security Advisor and Senior Advisor to the Biden campaign, Tony Blinken, and former Trump Deputy National Security Advisor, KT McFarland, our debate, entitled Election 2020, Debating American Values and Interests, engaged with the critical question, which of these two candidates will best position America in the world? It was moderated by my colleague, AJC's Chief Policy Officer, Jason Isaacson. And now, here's Jason. I'm Jason Isaacson, and I'm pleased to welcome back to AJC two distinguished representatives of the major party presidential candidates. Neither of our debaters is a stranger to AJC. KT McFarland was a featured speaker in an AJC Republican National Convention program in St. Paul, Minnesota in 2008. Tony Blinken addressed our global forum in person, not virtually, in Washington in 2015. It's good to see both of you again. Even more than any of us might have imagined just a few months ago, 2020 is turning out to be a year of big challenges and big decisions for the United States and the world. And among the biggest decisions is the question of who is going to lead America and the free world beginning next January. Let's begin with opening statements. KT, you first. Um, I'd like to start by saying that although President Trump himself doesn't do a very good job, frankly, of explaining what his overall policy is, I'd like to talk about what drives his positions on America first, make America great again, peace through strength. And to me, and, and I think to President Trump in the conversations I've had with him, it's an understanding that the post-war world has really changed. That in the, at the, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, our European allies and our European and Asian adversaries were so destroyed and the American economy was so strong that what we did was we underwrote and subsidized the security agreements that we had with our allies and the economic arrangements, the trade agreements that we had with them. And we did it at our expense and we did it with a very deliberate purpose, which is if those nations became strong, um, could stand on their own two feet, they would become allies and, and trading partners. And that has worked brilliantly. They no longer need our help in the same way that they did. And what we did then in the period after that with China was that we thought, well, the Chinese would be the same. We would extend those kind of opportunities to the Chinese, but it turned out not to be the same. And so when President Trump 
took the Oval, um, took his oath of office. His intention was to rearrange the relationship with our allies, our trading partners and security allies, to recalibrate, not to give up those relationships, but to recalibrate them, renegotiate them, and then to the Chinese to stand up to the Chinese for what he saw was systematic abuse of the last 20 years. So America first means putting America's interests first, not other countries, but America's interests first. Make America great again. That means fixing the American economy, understanding that without a strong economy, we're not, we have no leverage to negotiate with these countries. You know, it's just begging. It's not really negotiating. And then finally, peace through strength, rebuild the American military, but get away from and get out of and don't get back into uh, what he saw as fruitless, pointless, unwinnable wars in the Middle East. Thank you, KT. Tony, your opening statement. Well, Jason, thank you. And thank you first and foremost to the American Jewish Committee for bringing us together. Look, the next president's going to inherit a divided country and a world in disarray. The best answer to those challenges is democracy. It's the foundation of our strength at home and abroad. It reflects who we are, how we see ourselves, and maybe most important, how the world sees us. And that democracy is being challenged as never before. That matters as never before. Uh, the strength of our democracy at home is directly tied to our ability to be a force for progress in the world and to mobilize collective action. Unfortunately, President Trump's daily assault on our own democracy, its institutions, its values, its people, has deeply tarnished our ability to lead. Unleashing the US military against American citizens, peacefully protesting for racial justice for the sake of a photo op is only the most recent example. And abroad, other democracies are a source of strength for America, especially when we act together. But we all know this, democracies have been in retreat. Uh, of the 41 or so countries ranked fully free by Freedom House through the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s, fully half have fallen backwards. There's a democratic recession and autocracies from Russia to China seek to exploit and add fuel to our troubles. Yet at the very moment democracies are looking to the United States to be the leader of the free world, President Trump, by embracing autocrats and dismissing Democrats, and as the leading consumer and proliferator of conspiracy theories, seems to have suited up for the other side. Joe Biden will renew our democracy at home. He'll revitalize our alliances with democracies around the world. He will bring us together as Americans and as a community of democracies. With Joe Biden as president, America will once again lead not just by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. Thank you, Tony. Now, let's begin a round of questions. And let me begin with a question that's on everyone's mind these last months. Uh, it's only logical to start with talking about the coronavirus pandemic and its economic fallout. Um, how America has responded, what role other nations have played in easing or exacerbating the spread of infection, and how these twin crises will affect our security and prosperity going forward. These issues will surely be on the minds of voters uh, come November. Uh, KT, let me begin with you. Um, I think that when President Trump took the oath of office, he understood that he had a, a formidable um, competitor in the Chinese and negotiated to the point where he did get a, a pretty good, I think, phase one trade agreement with the idea that he get a phase two trade agreement. But then the pandemic came and that was a slap in the face. It was, it was more than a slap in the face. It was a real wake up call to everybody. And not only did the Chinese, you, however the virus started, forget whether, I don't even care where it started, but what the Chinese did when they knew they had a problem was that they used it as a bioweapon. They shut down travel within China. People couldn't go from Wuhan to the rest of China, but people could leave Wuhan to go to the rest of the world. 
And that's when the pandemic, when it, when it came, became a worldwide global pandemic. And then in addition to that, the Chinese have used their economic power. Um, and they used that period of time when the world didn't know but the Chinese knew. They used that period of time to corner the market on medical devices and, and tests. And they went around then to the European countries and to the United States even, and they said, don't you dare criticize us. You criticize us and you're not going to get access to any of the masks or the testing equipment and, um, that we have and that we're going to let you have only if you say nice things about us. I think the Chinese always had a plan to by mid-century become the world's dominant power and to reorganize the world according to Chinese rules, they say with Chinese characteristics. I think the pandemic has speeded up their plan. So they now plan to emerge from this period as the world dominant power. What's President Trump gonna do about it? He's going to, first of all, bring the supply chains home so nobody can threaten us with pharmaceuticals or any other issues with our supply chain of critical technologies. Number two, he's going to build on a potential US-UK trade deal and all the other trade deals he's had to form a coalition of nations who are democracies, who are free traders, to stand up to the Chinese. And then number three, he's going to have a full-throated push for, tech, for us to maintain the technology commanding heights in technology and all the 10 areas of the future, and then to make sure that as we develop these things, we keep them safe and we don't let them get stolen, bought, transferred to countries which will use them against us. Katie, thank you. Tony, uh, the Vice President Biden's response to the pandemic uh, going forward and the economic fallout of the pandemic. Well, let's talk about what we just experienced. President Obama and Vice President Biden saw pandemics as a growing threat. They put in place programs and people to try to prevent, detect, and deal with them, including in China. Um, a strong CDC presence, a dedicated White House office within the National Security Council, a program literally called PREDICT to detect the emergence of pandemics. President Trump, he dismantled or defunded virtually all of these efforts. Then when the virus struck, and the Chinese government uh, withheld critical information and denied access to American and international experts, President Trump repeatedly for weeks on end praised their transparency and cooperation. Most recently, he's walked away from the World Health Organization in the midst of a pandemic, instead of working to reform it, ceding our leadership to China. Instead of acting decisively to keep us safe, he echoed the Chinese government's propaganda and downplayed the threat. We should ask why. In my judgment, it was in part to ensure that China would not walk away from the empty trade agreement he negotiated to end the tariff war that was doing terrible damage to our farmers, our manufacturers, and our consumers. At the very time that President Trump failed to insist that China live up to its responsibilities, Joe Biden was publicly warning him not to trust the Chinese government and imploring him to fight to get our experts in. And frankly, there's nothing the president can say that will erase that history. On the minds of American Jewish voters this year will be the future of the U.S. relationship with Israel. America's alliance with Israel, based on shared values, the deep convictions of majorities in both countries, and strategic necessity and dependability, has long enjoyed overwhelming bipartisan support. Nevertheless, there have been strains in that support in recent years and efforts to highlight those strains for partisan advantage. KT, President Trump's strong identification with Israel has been a defining feature of his presidency. In a second term, how would you expect him to use his record and his political capital to further reinforce the relationship and enhance Israel's security? And Tony, how would a President Biden, with his own strong record on Israel, maintain the trajectory of the U.S.-Israel alliance, even as some in your party question it, and advance Arab-Israeli peace? Katie? 
One, I would point out that although uh, Vice President Biden, President Obama, and presidents prior to that had always talked about moving the capital of Israel to Jerusalem, none of them ever did. President Trump did it. The second thing, though, is the Iran nuclear deal, which I think impinges on Israel's security. Not only did President Trump pull out of the Iran nuclear deal for, I think, very good reasons. One, while it did stop temporarily Iran's nuclear program, it did nothing to stop Iran's missile program. And it did absolutely nothing. In fact, it rewarded Iran, financially rewarded Iran, um, that it could use those monies then to support its terrorist programs. So what President Trump has done was continue to press Iran, not only pull out of the agreement, but to sanction Iran. Iran is now in a desperate position. It can't afford to do the, the um, activities that it had been doing in the Middle East because of American energy independence, which thank you very much, President Trump, and which I believe Vice President Biden has talked about, in fact, pulling back on the American fracking revolution. That has made us independent of Iranian and Middle East oil. And then number three, and perhaps most importantly, I think Donald Trump has managed to do what no leader has done for thousands of years, which is to get the Israelis together with the Sunni Arabs, the Gulf Arabs. And I think you now have the best prospects for peace in the region because of Israel's relationship with the Sunni Arabs. Thank you, Katie. Tony, let me, uh, let me, let me come back to you. What, how would a, would a President Biden approach the U.S.-Israel relationship and Israel's security if he were to be the president? So, you know, Joe Biden made his first foreign trip uh, as a young senator to Israel in 1973. He met with a prime minister by the name of Golda Meir, who had a young aide uh, by her side by the name of Yitzhak Rabin. He's worked with every Israeli prime minister since then. And he's demonstrated in word and in deed an unshakable commitment to Israel's security, including when he was vice president through the Iron Dome Missile Defense Program and the largest military aid package in U.S. history. Um, he's got a lifetime record to show that he understands that Israel is America's closest partner in the Middle East, the world's only Jewish state, and one of the best partners we have from everything from counterterrorism to now counter-COVID, given Israel's remarkable record in dealing with the coronavirus and the science and technology it's putting to work for the benefit uh, of the world. On our best days, uh, we both aspire to shared values that Joe Biden actually cares about. You can count on him to make sure Israel has what it needs to defend itself, to honor the bipartisan traditions of U.S. support for Israel, to safeguard, not put at risk, Israel's future as a Jewish and democratic state, and never, never to try to turn support for Israel into one more wedge issue that divides Americans. Uh, tell me, how would, uh, would a Joe Biden presidency uh, deal with the divisions within the Democratic Party? Well, I think you've already seen some of that. Some of these issues came up in, in, in our primaries. Uh, Joe Biden has spoken out strongly and stood strongly uh, against the BDS movement, uh, which he uh, has criticized in no uncertain terms. Um, he's also been very clear uh, that he would not tie military assistance to Israel to things like annexation or other decisions by uh, the Israeli government with which we might uh, disagree. At the same time, uh, he stood strongly for the proposition that the best way, and indeed the only way, to fully guarantee Israel's future in security as a Jewish and democratic state, and to give the Palestinians a state, is through a two-state solution. And so any unilateral actions by either side that make that already difficult prospect even more challenging is something he would oppose. Unfortunately, we've seen under the Trump administration uh, a full-scale sprint away from any prospect of being able to realize a two-state solution, which is profoundly 
in the interest of Israel and its future as a Jewish and democratic state. Thank you, Tony. KT, do you wish to respond? Um, look, there's, when President Trump, one of the first things he did was make clear to, the, to Bibi Netanyahu that he will give Israel whatever it needs to defend itself by itself. Moving the embassy to Jerusalem was a significant marker in the strength um, that President Trump really holds the relationship between the United States and Israel. The second great marker was to work with the Sunni Arab states, with the Saudis and others, to have them withdraw their support for radical terrorist movements, which was an, which at the time people had said, well, we'll never get the Saudis or the Qataris to stop supporting the radical movements, but he did. And you now have cooperation between the Sunni Arab states and Israel against what they see as a common enemy, which was Iran, Iran's expansionist program, Iran's terrorist program, Iran's nuclear program. So I think that, that President Trump, by his, his actions in the three and a half years he's been president, have shown that Israel has no stronger friend. President Trump has sought to establish personal relationships with traditional U.S. adversaries. Um, the, periodically praising the authoritarian leaders of Russia, of China, of North Korea, in defiance of conventional foreign policy thinking and practice. KT, what's the strategic thinking behind these efforts, and have they paid off? And Tony, would a President Biden adopt a different approach? Well, I think President Trump, um, by just by the way he conducts foreign policy, you know, as I said before, he's not a politician. He's a businessman. And what does a businessman do? They look at their bottom line every night. They, did they make money? Did they lose money? But what he has done is shaken up the complacency of American foreign policy that I think has been going in a very bad direction for at least 15 years. We have been so inordinately focused on Afghanistan and Iraq and rebuilding democracy and toppling dictators in the Middle East. And, and both President Bush and President Obama were doing the same thing differently, but it was the same goal. Topple a dictator, democracy emerges. Well, we've now seen that that doesn't happen. And, at this, and while they were doing that, they were losing attention and diverting their attention from the single most important thing in foreign policy that matters is Asia, is China, is, is the future of the world. It's not going to be in Europe. The future of the world, trade, politics, um, military presence is going to be in Asia. So I, I think that President Trump is doing this deliberately. He's trying to, to disrupt because what was there before was not good. It wasn't serving America's interests. Thank you, KT. Tony, I think you're, you're ready. <laughs> Well, uh, first of all, I actually agree with KT on the importance and centrality of Asia, which is exactly why President Obama and Vice President Biden undertook the pivot to Asia, rededicating, reallocating our resources, our time and energy to Asia, building up our alliances with Japan and Korea uh, and other countries, uh, try, uh, putting 60% uh, of our Navy uh, in the Asia Pacific, reanimating the institutions uh, that give smaller countries uh, a strong voice in order to help uh, them stand up to China. And of course, uh, pursuing the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, uh, the trade agreement. Um, but you know, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, whether it's North Korea, whether it's Iran, we are always stronger and more effective when we're actually working with our allies and partners, not alienating them as this president has done. And it's just common sense. Um, take our trade differences with China. Alone, we're about 25% of the world's GDP. But together with our democratic partners, who are similarly agreed by China's commercial practices, we're 50 or 60% a lot harder for Beijing to ignore. What does President Trump do? He rejects coordination with our allies on China and starts many trade wars with them instead. 
Have President Trump's policies yielded benefits? Absolutely, for our adversaries. Uh, consider North Korea. Uh, under President Trump, an already bad problem has gotten much worse. The president veered erratically from threats to love letters. The three summits that he granted to Kim Jong-un proved to be the art of the steel for the North Korean despot. Kim got the international legitimacy he craved, a suspension of our military exercises, a lessening of economic pressure, and we got nothing. In fact, Joe Biden would actually work with our allies and partners to deal with these challenges. Uh, KT, I'm gonna let you respond. You know, I never can understand what people mean working with our allies. Well, give me some fact. I mean, does that mean you just sit down and have talks with them and, and chat with them? Or does it mean you actually have some muscle behind those talks? You know, we have new trade agreements with Japan, with Korea, with Canada, with Mexico. We will have one with Britain. We will probably follow on one with the United Kingdom. From those, President Trump has already made it clear, as has Boris Johnson, that we will start building from those to build a coalition of democracies and, and, and countries which will live by the same principles of free trade and respect for property rights as the United States does. The, the pivot that President Trump has made in the last month on relations with China to incorporate the like-minded allies in, in the world that we could trade with. This decoupling is one of the words that's been thrown around. And, and those are, those are, this is not just sitting around and having negotiations with our friends, because negotiating with your friends is not nearly as important as having leverage with your friends together and going after your adversaries. President Trump is the first president that stood up to China. He's also the first leader in the free world that has stood up to China. So it's not just talking about it, it's actions that have been taken. A lot of this is spurred on by reaction to the, to the Chinese who have now, the, the curtain has come, has been pulled back. People now see what the Chinese have intended to do and what they're intending to do now. So I think it's a new opportunity for every president, uh, whoever is the next president, and I sincerely hope it's Donald Trump because he's the only one who's shown by his own actions that he is willing to take those tough steps. Unpopular that sometimes they are, but effective as they have been. KT, thank you. Tony, I think the question to you is, is Vice President Biden tough enough for the job? <laughs> and let's talk about deeds, uh, not words when it comes to China. When China uh, unilaterally declared an air defense identification zone that would require planes to identify themselves coming into airspace that was international, Joe Biden went to China, he met with Xi Jinping, and he said, we're not paying any attention to your air defense identification zone. Uh, we're going to ignore it, and we're going to fly our planes through it. And that's exactly what we did. Uh, when China was engaged in massive uh, cyber theft of our commercial secrets, Joe Biden is the one, along with others in the Obama administration, that negotiated and, and a tough deal with China, made it very clear to Chinese leadership the sanctions they, their companies and individuals would face if they didn't comply. We got an agreement that our intelligence community said the Chinese were adhering to. Unfortunately, it atrophied under President Trump. And when it comes to North Korea, uh, Joe Biden is the guy who went to China and said to the Chinese, if you don't join us in getting tough on North Korea uh, with sanctions, getting them to the table to negotiate uh, away their nuclear program, uh, then uh, we're going to have to take steps that aren't directed at you, but you're not going to like. More U.S. forces in the region, more exercises, more missile defense. And as a result, we got the two toughest U.N. Security Council resolutions in history uh, on North Korea and sanctions that were beginning to bite and to bring North Korea back to the table. Those are deeds, not words. Tony, thank you. 
I think at this point, we'll go to closing statements. Um, thank you, Tony. Uh, we'll have uh, one minute for each of you uh, to, to, to sum up, and, and then I'll close out this, uh, this conversation, uh, which has been um, vigorous and informative, and I want to thank you both. You know, in the, in the worst days of the Civil War, when the, when the North was losing battle after battle, when general after general took command of the Union forces and just was being outsmarted, outmaneuvered, by the Southern generals at every single point, where it looked like even the North with its superior economic power was not, potentially was gonna lose. He doesn't shave, he doesn't tuck his shirt in, he doesn't, he's just terrible, he just, nobody likes him. And so how could you even be thinking of somebody like Grant? And then Lincoln said, well, you know, Grant wins wars, he wins battles. And then the opponent said, well, no, no, that, I mean, really, come on, you can't think of U.S. Grant, He's He'll be a disaster. Now, at the end of the day, General Grant did win the Civil War, and, a, and it was a brutal war that affected the great divisiveness of the country and then managed to help bring us back together at the end. I know Donald Trump says stuff that makes people mad. I'm sure the allies snicker behind his back. But guess what? He gets it done. Whether it's moving the capital to Israel, whether it's standing up to Iran, whether it's standing up to China, whether it's fixing the American economy, whether it's rebuilding the American military, whether it's telling our European allies, pay up. So I think the next four years are going to determine the next century. We either stand up to China, get our allies together with us, and then make sure that democracy and free market capitalism thrives and certainly survives. And if we have the wrong president, it's over. The American century will be something of the past. And once China becomes the world dominant power and rewrites the rules to its own purposes, then America may never rise again in the same way. So that's why I would say, if you wanna go with the past, Joe Biden's your guy. If you want a guy who's mean, tough, and like US Grant and wins wars, go with Donald Trump. KT, thank you. Uh, final comment, uh, and you'll have a little more time, Tony. You know, 55 years ago, Martin Luther King addressed the AJC. I, I, I looked it up and he said, among other things, it's a very powerful speech. Uh, America, he said, must not become a nation of onlookers. America must not remain silent. Not merely black America, but all of America. It must speak up and act from the president down to the humblest among us. Well, I think this is a time for all of us to speak up and act especially at the ballot box in November. This election is about more, much more, than a choice between different policies. It is about the character of our president and the soul of our nation. Every American child learns about uh, our first president, George Washington. Famously, he could not tell a lie. Our current president seemingly cannot tell the truth about anything. And he has used the vast power of his office to divide us, to pit American against American. What does it profit a person to win the world but lose his soul? No policy is worth it. We always say before every election, this is the most important election of our lifetime. This one really is. The choice has never been clearer. The stakes have never been greater. America cannot afford the world cannot afford another four years of President Donald J. Trump. Joe Biden will summon the better angels of our nature by his character, his decency, 
He will bring us together to heal at home, to lead in the world, to move America forward. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Dina Siegel-Vaughn, director of the Belfer Institute for Latino and Latin American Affairs. Dina, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat Table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Hi, Sefi. Well, this Shabbat, like every time our family comes together around the dinner table, topics of discussion will cross borders back and forth in both English and Spanish. ¿Cómo están? News from Mexico, what is the state of the pandemic, the economic situation and security? ¿Cómo está la familia, nuestra comunidad judía? Then we will transition to recent developments in the U.S., the latest presidential polls, the new spike in coronavirus cases in Phoenix, where my sister lives, or in California, where my youngest daughter does, any headway on a vaccine, news regarding the struggle for racial justice, immigration, the environment, Los judíos, wherever they are, in English and in Espanol. And then yet again, we cross borders north to Vancouver, home to my brother and his family. And until recently, before passing away to my parents, who immigrated to Canada 20 years ago, making us what I used to call the NAFTA family. We span all of North America. The continuous crossing of borders, the immigrant experience, a permanent sense of transnationalism, of concern, and of appreciation for our multiple homelands has been a reality for our family from the very beginning. My dad, a first-generation U.S. citizen born in Brooklyn to Lithuanian Jewish immigrants, arrived in this country at the dawn of the 20th century. He grew up in New York, fought in the Second World War in Europe, and thanks to the GI Bill, was able to attend Queens College, later Harvard, and finally the University of Wisconsin, where he received his PhD in Latin American studies. During a postdoctoral research trip to Mexico, he met my mom, a first-generation Mexican Jew of Polish parents who arrived in the country in 1924 when the U.S. closed its doors to Jewish immigration. My parents decided to remain in Mexico, taken by emerging economic opportunities, the warmth of its people, the country's remarkable cultural wealth, and an embracing Jewish community. So my two siblings and I were lucky to have been born and raised in majestic Mexico City, speaking from the cradle English and Spanish and absorbing two cultures. Mexico, with its seductive smells and colors, its magic and its welcoming arms, became my beloved native land. I learned to love the United States by way of the songs my dad taught me, linked to American folklore and to his time in the army. Also through its rich literature, the storied accomplishments of its large Jewish community and its invaluable role in saving the world from Hitler's grip. Israel and Yiddish culture also loomed large in our household. I went to graduate school in the U.S., worked for several years in the country and returned to Mexico where working for the Jewish community, I began my professional career building intergroup and international bridges. I married a first-generation Mexican Jew whose parents were themselves first-generation Russian-Hungarian-American Jews and who made Mexico their home. With our two daughters, third-generation Mexican-American Jews, we continue to this day our lifelong tradition of continually transversing national, cultural, and linguistic borders. Moving to the United States in 1996 meant leaving home but returning home. 
This is a permanent awareness that seeps into our conversations and is present in more ways than one at our bilingual transnational dinner tables this Shabbat and every Shabbat and a few days before July the 4th. Mania? Thank you, Dina. That is a really lovely reflection right before Independence Day. At our Shabbat table, we will be missing my mother, sister, brother-in-law, and nephew with whom we were supposed to celebrate my son's birthday this year. It falls on America's birthday, July 4th. Why will we be missing them? Not because we didn't make plans. We did. But the plane tickets were canceled in the spring when we knew the virus made it unsafe for them to travel. Little did we know at that time, New Jersey would be the safer state, and where they live in Texas would be the hot zone. They're where we were a few months ago, and hopefully we'll heed the precautions and protocols we all took here. Working from home, wearing masks, limiting social interactions. At the same time I'm watching Texas, I'm also watching Israel as it experiences its second wave of the virus after trying to return to normal. Now they have more cases than they ever did, and so instead of returning to normal, they're returning to lockdown. The reality is there will be no normal until there's a vaccine, and even then, life won't be the same. We will still need to take numerous precautions, and I'm not just talking about our health. We are bound to see more conspiracy theories about the virus, more blame placed on Israel and Jews, especially as Israel's cases spike and tension about the future of the West Bank continues to escalate. The mission of fighting anti-Semitism has never been more urgent. But one thing that did develop during the first wave of this virus, at least in some parts of the world, was a better, stronger sense that we're in this together. Israel, for the first time, formed alliances with neighbors to combat the virus. We are all responsible for the well-being of others. No matter how young and healthy you might be, please wear a mask. I was really struck by a story in the Times of Israel about a 29-year-old woman who was offered to be a test case for coronavirus vaccines. According to the nonprofit promoting these human challenge trials, she's apparently one of more than 30,000 people in 140 countries who have volunteered. Who does that? Who volunteers to infect herself at tremendous risk to her own life to hopefully save the lives of others? 30,000 plus. That's astounding to me. Of course, there are ethical debates about this approach, but that aside, the fact that people are willing to go there, it just gives me a smidgen of hope in humanity to help me face the inevitable second wave. It gives me hope that we learned enough during the first wave that will make the second wave more tolerable. Hope that the hundreds of thousands of people who died of this virus did not die in vain. Hope that my family will remain healthy until a vaccine is available. Hope that my son's sixth birthday and sixth year will be remembered as a happy and healthy one, eventually surrounded by family and friends. Happy birthday, sweetheart, and happy Independence Day to our listeners. Sefi, what will you be talking about? Here's a quote. It's the same old, same old, which is, there's a problem anywhere in the world, point the finger at Israel. I took the view that was anti-Semitic. That's not a quote from the Israeli foreign ministry or an AJC official. The new head of the UK Labour Party, Sir Keir Starmer, said that this week, in the latest sign of his commitment to root out the anti-Semitism that had found a home in that party under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. To understand what he's referring to, we actually need to rewind several years to when an American group called Jewish Voice for Peace launched a project called Deadly Exchange. JVP, as the group is known, is a fringe group that tends to take the position that Keir Starmer called out in his remarks this week. Once again, if there's a problem anywhere in the world, point the finger at Israel. 
So the deadly exchange that they were talking about were programs run by some Jewish organizations to send American police officers to Israel to learn counterterrorism techniques from Israeli cops. Recently, some have made the claim that Minneapolis cops learned to kneel on the necks of people they detain from Israeli police officers on one of these trips. But here's the problem. Israeli officers are not trained to do that. There is no indication that they suggested to American cops to do that, and Minneapolis police officers don't even appear to have participated in these trips. It's also a ridiculous claim on its face. America has been committing state violence against black people since long before Israel's founding. To claim that the Jewish state is behind racist police in America is so plainly, so obviously anti-Semitic. In fact, in recent days, even JVP, which started this ball rolling with their anti-Semitic deadly exchange campaign, has backtracked, though they haven't apologized. Apparently chastened by some in the black community, JVP released an update to their deadly exchange manifesto. They wrote, quote, Suggesting that Israel is the start or source of American police violence or racism shifts the blame from the United States to Israel. This harms black people and furthers an anti-Semitic ideology. Not very self-aware and not at all contrite. And once you've loosed an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory on the world, it's impossible to put the genie back in the bottle. So we come to British actress Maxine Peake, who recently shared that conspiratorial claim in an interview, saying, quote, Tactics used by the police in America kneeling on George Floyd's neck, that was learnt from seminars with Israeli security services. Grossly anti-Semitic. And then Member of Parliament Rebecca Long Bailey, a far-left member of the Labour Party's leadership team and perhaps the most prominent holdover from the Jeremy Corbyn era, tweeted out Peake's interview, adding the comment, quote, Maxine Peake is an absolute diamond. Which brings us to Sir Keir, who promised when he was elected party leader in April to root out anti-Semitism from the party. This week, he showed he meant it, firing Long Bailey and uttering that wonderful quote, it's the same old, same old, which is, there's a problem anywhere in the world, point the finger at Israel. I took the view. That was anti-Semitic. Bravo to Sir Keir Starmer, and to all of our listeners, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.